Welcome to the 89th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Peter Ames Carlin, author of the new Bruce Springsteen biography, Bruce, which has just been published by Simon & Schuster. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Peter Ames Carlin, the author of Bruce, a new Bruce Springsteen biography that was published last week. Peter is also the author of Paul McCartney, A Life, and Catch a Wave, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Sure, sure. Well, as I just mentioned, you you wrote a Paul McCartney bio, so you're used to writing about rock and roll stars with huge, faithful audiences. When you decided to write a biography of Bruce Springsteen, did, did it ever give you pause, given the devoted fans who parse every lyric and go to every show imaginable and and i wonder too did, did the fact that there's um you know a number of 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 bruce bios and 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 other literature out there did that intimidate you at all you know something um once i talked to dave marsh uh who I, as as most people know i think uh wrote a couple a lot of really groundbreaking stuff about bruce particularly in uh, the 70s and the 80s uh, when Bruce was, you know, uh, when, when, you know, when Bruce still kind of need, needed to make his name around the country and then around the world. Uh, and Bruce and Dave has been very close to Bruce and John Landau and, and that whole inner circle ever since. I called him first when this uh, offer to write this book for, you know, came my way just to double check that he wasn't, you know, that he hadn't been saving string you know, putting together the you know the the mammoth volume on Bruce's entire life and and career, uh, because if he was doing that, there was just no point in me going on. Sure. But it turned out he wasn't, and he actually encouraged me to do it. And I figured that once I had that, uh, you know, once I had sort of Dave's tacit approval, <laughs> um, that 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 I was going to be okay. I mean, I had read a lot of. Uh, the, you know the books about Bruce because I'd followed his career since I was a, uh, you know since I was 15 years old. So uh, you know so I, I I had a really good sense of what was out there and uh, you know what parts of the story had been told. And it became pretty clear to me early on that there was plenty of room for, for you know for for me or or anyone else to go in and. Uh, you know, you know, and really write the kind of book that I was interested in reading. Because, you know, the, the way books start with me is I look for the book on a topic that I really want to read, the sort of a book, and when I can't find it, then I get this itch to, you know, and I have the arrogance to think that, that I could maybe write it myself. So that's how I get started. That's great. Well, unlike some of those other books, Bruce cooperated with you on, on your new book, Bruce. First of all, how did you decide to write about Springsteen? Um, how did the, how did the, I mean, you just mentioned that, you know, you go out and look, but I wondered if there was another impetus for that. And second, how did you secure his cooperation? He's someone who's in the public eye, but I also know from reading a lot about him as well, that he's also someone who tightly controls his access to the media and, and what interviews he, he does and doesn't do. Yeah. Um, uh, well, let me start with the first part of the question. Which was uh, how do I choose my topics? Is that is that where we were? Second yeah, ago? I was just wondering. I mean, yeah. you, you, had said, I, you had said that okay. when you go out and you look for a book and, and you can't find it, that's oftentimes a, a motivation. But I wondered if there was any other impetus behind the Bruce 
uh, bio that you just published? Well, this is the third um, music biography I've done in a row. Uh, the first one was about Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, and then came the McCartney one, and then came Bruce. And what those guys all have in common is that I've loved their music, you know, and really admired their work and, and followed their careers, uh, you know, for, for decades before I got started on the book. I mean, they've all been very influential. You know, they're, they're influential artists to me. And, you know, I, it's one thing to kind of fixate, you know, like you do when you're, you know, a, you know, a teenager or a young fanboy type guy. But I, I, just the way my mind works, I always, you know, eventually find myself trying to place them within a larger kind of cultural and, and historical context. You know, not to write a dry sort of academic book about all that, which a lot of great ones have been written, and they're great, and they're not necessarily dry, so you don't want to read them, but they're just a very, they're enormously serious about that kind of, uh, you know, historic, academic historian type of approach, which I could never, you know, I don't have the the bandwidth to pull off myself. So, um, you know, so eventually when it came time to think like, well, what am I going to do after Paul McCartney? It came back to the same question of what do I, what, what could I get so obsessed about or what am I already so interested in enough about that I could, that I could hang on to this and pursue it and, and, and really dig into it for two plus years. And after Brian Wilson and Paul McCartney, you know, next came, it was clear to me that Bruce Springsteen would be an awesome an awesome choice because you know once I figured out that that there was that there seemed to be a hole in the, the literature about him uh, and that maybe I could fill it you know and and then the people at Simon Schuster said you know like oh all right we'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll we'll let you go do that that sounds like it could work out um, then it was just like oh my you know my first move <laughs> was to to go down to the basement and pull out all these old boxes of magazines and books and newspaper stories and other sort of huzzerai that I had been collecting since since I was a sophomore in high school. You know, blew the dust off of those. I mean, I still have the original copy of, of Rolling Stone from the summer of 1978 with Dave Marsh's just extraordinary piece about uh, Bruce and, and the darkness on the edge of town era. Uh, you, you know, so, uh, and I had, I'd read that thing dozens of times over the years. Uh, so, so it's like I started with a with a store of knowledge and a depth of passion for the subject, so that I knew that it was just going to be a huge pleasure to do to do the book. I started with no cooperation at all uh, from Bruce or or his management. You know, John Landau's mm -hmm. right. manager. Um, but I did know Marsh a little bit, and when I talked to him, basically his advice was, you know, I can't really help you myself. Uh, because uh, you know he's too close. He's you know he was saying, and also his wife is 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 Bruce's co-manager. She's uh, John Landau's partner now at John Landau Management, and she's right. been on the scene for you know 35 years at this point. So yeah, you don't tell your wife. You know you you don't walk yeah. into your wife's office and start telling them who they should be talking to or not or whatever. And he's a Dave's a really smart guy. So uh, he just said, look, go off and research the book that you want to write. And either they'll deal with you or they won't deal with you, but you'll still end up with the book that you wanted to write. Um, so, you know, and so he said, obviously, your first step is going to be to go to Bruce's publicist. And when you do that, um, she's going to say no. That's just all there is to it. But really what that means is if you need an answer today, it's no. But if you can wait, it's maybe. So stick with the maybe and, and just keep going. 
so I spent the next year and a half just doing research on my own, you know, which essentially involved, you know, I always kind of begin try to begin chronologically in a lot of ways. So I just went straight to Freehold, New Jersey and Asbury Park, which were Bruce's, you know, Freehold's his home where he grew up and, and Asbury Park is where he started his career. And, you know, looked up a few people and, and, and got to know them a little bit and spent some time in the bars and getting to know people and uh and and that was a fun part of the research, let me tell you. And then we I, I just ended up, you know, what you try to do when you're investigating something as a reporter is just get to know people, get to know the landscape, figure out where things happened, get to know folks who were there at the time and you know, or who or or know someone who was a neighbor or something, and you just sort of build the story from there. You know, and once you, you know, hopefully if you can get to a point where people kind of don't mind your company so much, or maybe even enjoy talking to you, that they'll start telling their friends, you know, give this guy a call. He's sort of, you know, he's really interested in this stuff. Interesting. And so I did that for like a year and a half and and went up through, talked to a lot of the guys he'd worked with, you know, the former executives at Columbia Records, and got to know their side of the story and talked to some of the musicians from the early days, like Vinny Lopez and, and some of the guys from the Castiles and and Bruce's other pre-E Street band. And, uh, you know, I think eventually, you know, they, they heard enough of my name coming from so many places that, as, you know, as Landau said later to me, you know, you were a moving train. <laughs> and, I think, <laughs> and I think that they felt like, you know, this guy's, kind of serious about this like he keeps not going away plus also uh, uh you know i mean and, and i'm guessing they you know they heard some good stuff about what i seemed to be interested in and what i wasn't interested in which was you know one of those tabloidy type things right so um and so he you know gave me a ring and, and we talked for a while and then met for drinks the next week in new york where i just you know happened to be going and uh, and at that point it was like okay you know I think we, you know we're we're basically ready to play ball so uh, you know and he started emailing me lists of names and telephone numbers wow and so that kind of added a whole other you know sense of depth to uh, you know obviously a whole new depth to you know to what I was able to to report and find out um, and so what did that cooperation look like from 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 Bruce uh, himself? Did did you sit down with him on multiple occasions, or, or what what did that involve? Yeah, eventually. <clears throat> but well, John called me in January of 2011, and uh, the, you know, even from the, our first meeting, he was like, you know, I'm not sure, I you know, Bruce is going to want to really co- you know really want to be interviewed or stuff. You know, he's right. You know, he, he obviously he. He's liking what he hears, and he approves of this. Like he really wants you to do this, but he's just not sure whether he's actually gonna, you know, want to sit down and talk about stuff because he's talked about all this stuff for so long, and he's working on his own memoir, you know, which was true at the time, I guess, and hopefully still is true. Though he seems to be taking a break from it, but um, and uh, you know, so I spent, you know, so that's when I spent all my time talking to the band and the producers and the engineers and all the other, you know, insiders who, you know, worked with and, and, and maybe still work with the organization. Bruce got to know a lot of stuff, but, uh, you know, the, the couple doors that were still left to be open were into the Springsteen family itself. I mean, deep into the Springsteen family. I was, Bruce was kind of uh, opening up a, a door here and there, you know, so I talked to his sister, Pam, in L.A., who's his youngest sister, uh, in, I think, June or May of, of 2011, and then, uh, you know, but then eventually it wasn't until mid-October, late October last year, 
when Bruce finally said, okay, you know, you come talk to my mom and sister and, uh, you know, we'll take it from there. And, and so I, I spent a really nice long evening with Bruce's mom and, and his older younger sister, Ginny, who's just 14 months younger than he. And, uh, you know, and then when I was at Adele's house, she called her sisters and they, uh, they, you know, they both wanted to set up times immediately. And the next morning or afternoon when I met, went over to uh, Aunt Dora's house, Bruce was waiting, you know, and John had called early in the day and said, okay, Bruce is going to meet you at Dora's house this afternoon. And after you're done talking to her, uh, you, you guys will go out and have a drink and, and just, you know, chat for a while. And after that, he was all the way in. I mean, um, even before he agreed to talk, I knew he was calling certain people and, and asking them to talk to me or telling them it was okay to talk to me. But once we got to know each other a little bit, then basically he was entirely committed to the project and uh, we probably, you know, I'm sure we had 15, 20 hours worth of, of interviews and, and more time spent just, you know, with him just allowing, you know, just being around him and watching him rehearse the band, uh, listening to some of his stuff up in his recording studio, you know, the new album before it came out, and being there for the opening night of the tour in Atlanta and, you know, and another few shows where I just kind of hung around and, and watched what was happening. Right. And have you heard from him directly about his response to the final manuscript and the final book? Yeah, I have. Um, you know, he liked it. He was very, um, you know, he was, you know, it was very sweet. He, what he had to say was, was, was very kind. And, um, and it made me feel good because I felt like um, uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, that, that, that I had ended up telling a story that he recognized and, and felt moved by. You know, the one understanding was that he always had going into this was that I was absolutely independent. I mean, and I should emphasize that even after I was working pretty closely with John and they were allowing me access to all this stuff, it was exceptionally clear every step of the way that I was completely independent and that they expected me to do whatever I wanted to with the writing, right. you know, however it came out. And, you know, so, so, and that was obviously very freeing. And Bruce's, <laughs> Bruce's main concern was that, um, you know, w w was that he wanted it to be honest. And if that meant putting stuff in there that he knew was going to make him look bad, <laughs> he was all for it. And, you know, the one thing he told me was at one point when we were talking about, you know, the manuscript, he'd read parts of it and, uh, and you know, and, and uh, we had a conversation. I you know I let him look at it just for um, just for uh, uh, um, accuracy's sake. And uh, you know, especially since so much of his family story was involved, and that there were people who weren't famous or weren't around to talk to themselves. I mean, just civilians who ended up being written about, and sometimes in great depth in the book. And I really felt like I owed it to the Springsteen family, and you know, to to be accurate about it. For them to for them to get a chance to look at it, and if they had strong feelings about something or someone they thought was mischaracterized, that I would you know that everybody would get a chance to add whatever thoughts they had, and essentially nobody asked for anything to be changed. Gotcha. And uh, there were few adjustments for you know chronology or spellings and that kind of stuff. Um, but 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 that was really it. And, and Bruce's main concern was, you know, he actually said at one point when when the book was essentially done, but we were tinkering with it. He said, "Look, if there's anything you found out about me that you think 
that might that you left out because you were worried it might make me feel uncomfortable or feel bad, put it in. And uh, and that was his instruction. Just just put it in. Anything. That's great. Um, so earlier you you mentioned that you felt uh, that that you know as you read other books you felt that there was a hole in the in the Bruce kind of literature and biographies. Is it possible for you to describe what you felt that hole was? Sure. Um, you know I've um, you know uh, 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 there wasn't a whole lot of real original feet on the ground walking around the town kind of reporting um, in, in the existing books. Uh, you know, when Dave, Dave, Mar- Dave Marsh's books are incredibly um, detailed and vivid and full of all, you know, inside, you know, reported information about, you know, Bruce Springsteen's world and, and, and the world of the band and sort of inside that, I don't want to say bubble, but inside their, their inner circle, how things flowed and what was going on and what was happening with Bruce during that time. But I think at the point when he did those, Bruce was extra, extra, super sensitive about, you know, back, his background and stuff. And, and also, Dave had such a great story to tell along those lines. It would almost been off topic to, you know, to dig around and, and, and look up his kindergarten friends. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, at the time, I didn't have any access at all. So I, I you know, I did talk to the kindergarten friends, you know. I, and the baseball teammates and from little league and, and, uh, you know, and everybody I could get my hands, you know, everybody I could, I could come across, um, and made some, you know, and eventually, and especially when it came to the Asbury park stuff, like when Bruce was just getting started in the late sixties there, uh, you know, there are tons of guys there and they're just like cool, normal guys. Now, you know, a lot of them still play music or, or do stuff around the local music scene, but uh, but you know they, they they didn't become famous and maybe they never wanted to in the first place so they went on to careers in business or you know in being a contractor or a builder or you know owning a club or whatever and went about their lives like everybody else but they still were there at the moment and you know so I can get like a scene at the Upstage Club in Asbury Park in 1969 told by five different people who were in five different parts of the room. And, you know, and they've all had, they all have their own memories and their sense of, 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 of what, you know, what was happening with Bruce that night, how people were reacting, um, you know, and, and their reflections on each other and the whole scene. And so it's like suddenly this whole, these mythological notions that you'd heard about or that I'd heard about over the years took on, you know, sort of went into color and, and 3D practically. Sure. So, so it was that kind of thing. It was just like, you know, I've done investigative reporting before, so it's just like, man, you know, it's 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 you know, to say it's a shotgun approach <laughs> makes it sound kind of sloppy, but it's just thorough. You know, you just you know invest a lot of time on the telephone and walking the streets to figure, you know, uh, you know, to get a sense of what was going on. Um, just one example. I mean, one of the greatest things I did, or things that worked out the best was uh came because I was having breakfast with a friend of mine in, in Freehold uh, named Kevin Coyne who grew up there around the corner from Bruce's Bruce's family uh, same neighborhood he was you know 10 years younger than Bruce but mm-hmm. you know like his older brothers or 
you know, the older kids in the neighborhood all grew up with Bruce. And so he was there just sort of, you know, and Bruce was an older figure. Right. But he knows that town. You know, he's lived there his whole life. He's a historian and a, and a writer and had been on the city council there in Freehold. So, man, he knows that town upside down and who does what and who knows who. And he basically grabbed me by the ear and led me to uh, the barber shop on, on South Street, Joe's. And that's where Bruce got his haircut as a kid. Um, everybody gets their haircut at Joe's. And go there on a Saturday morning, he instructed me, when, when Bernie, or uh, Barney De Benedetto, who, was, who, who ran the store from, uh, you know, you know, from the 40s on, um, and now his son runs the store, uh, and, his, and Bernie's, or, excuse me, Barney's dad was Joe. He's there in the back chair there, tending to his, he's retired, but on Saturday mornings, he cuts the hair of his regulars, who, you know, whose hair he's been cutting for right. decades. So they were all there, you know, and so within the space of a few hours, you know, Barney was telling me all about uh, Bruce's little league career because he coached the other team that, you know, the team that beat their team out for the championship in 1961. Yeah, I read that anecdote in the, in yeah. the book. <laughs> Barney was there and, uh, you know, chief, the former chief of police was there and the cop that, that tended to Bruce after his motorcycle accident in 1968 and people who lived across the street and, and they know Bruce's parents, they, you know, they grew up with Bruce's parents. They, you know, they knew Bruce's parents. They knew little Bruce when he was, a, you know, a sprite. And, uh, you know, that's his world, and that's their existence. And, uh, and they were happy to tell me all about it. Right. That, that's, that sounds great. Exhaustive research. I'm, I'm curious, I mean, during your work on, on doing all of this and, and, and your work on the book, was there one anecdote or one story that you heard about Bruce along the way that surprised you and that you hadn't heard before and really stuck in your mind? Sure. Well, the whole thing, I mean, what, uh, the, for me, the real explosive stuff uh, in terms of my comprehension of Bruce was what I learned about his, his, uh, his family and his early, his early uh, childhood. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, there were sort of hints and, you know, uh, implications about his family and the, the dysfunction in the family, but um, you know, and, and his relate particularly his kind of stormy or disconnected relationship with his dad. But what had not come to light was the fact that uh, that that Bruce's dad. What the real problem was was that he suffered from manic depression, and that mental illness had been something that had sort of been trickling down through the Springsteen, uh, you know, DNA river for generations. Right. And his father really suffered from his illness, which was of course, you know, undiagnosed and untreated for most of his life. And and that was the thing, you know, that was the monster in the in the room. Uh, you know, that everybody was aware of, but nobody really talked about that much. And then and, there was also the issue of the, the, the aunt as well who who yeah. who who was killed and right. and and then, you know, uh, as the book, as you know, as you know, you wrote the book that that you know Bruce ends up. Well, the family ends up living with the grandparents, and they they dote on Bruce as, as a replacement for this for this his aunt who died. Exactly. When his mom and dad, when when Bruce was about one, and uh, his younger sister was born, um, uh, Bruce's dad and mom, you know, couldn't afford a larger apartment, so they moved back into the house where Doug had grown up with his uh, parents. 
who had been, as you as you mentioned, crushed, you know, at the death of of their then very young daughter in 1927. Bruce was the first new life that had come into the house you know, since her death, and they just fell in love with him. And essentially, when they were living together, assumed the roles of parents, despite certainly his mother's, you know, Adele Springsteen's. Uh, you know, wishes to the contrary, but she had to work. You know, she was the one person who could hold a job in that family. And so much of his life was spent believing his early life. He believed his grandparents were his parents and that a lot of lines of authority and relationships were, were violated or turned upside down. And the grandparents doted on him like he was, you know, a little sun god. And when I said, uh, I sort of said, you know, while this conversation was taking place, I said, wow, they must have loved you to pieces. And then he gave me this crooked little smile and said, to pieces would be correct. <laughs> Which uh, was, tells you a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So do you have a favorite Springsteen song? Um, yeah, well, you know, what hour is it? Uh, <laughs> um... Yeah, I have a, I, you know, I have a hundred favorite Springsteen songs. I mean, and some I go back to repeatedly, and some I listen to under certain. You all know, suddenly think, oh no, this is it. This is my yeah. favorite song. Well, top three or four then. All right. So, like this morning, I was listening to the this bootleg uh, outtake of 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 "Follow That Dream," great unrecorded or unreleased song from the mid '80s, or and uh, which is inspired by an Elvis Presley song, but Bruce turns it into something else entirely different and passionate and and beautiful. I love that song. I love racing in the streets and the promised land and I love uh girls in their summer clothes from Magic and I love uh Death to My Hometown off the new record and uh American Land and and uh you know, I mean it just the list goes on and on. I love virtually every song on Wild Ninnis and the Street Shuffle has at one time or another been my favorite Springsteen song. Particularly when we're talking about uh the second side Incident in New York, you know, Incident on 57th Street and, and New York City Serenade, I think, are just jaw-dropping. Um, so how's that? But that's that, my that, favorite that sounds song. good. I, 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 all I can say is I can relate. I'm, I'm the same way. I, I, I listen to all of them, and it, it changes. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious, do, do you, what do you think is the biggest misperception that some people might have about Bruce, given everything that you've researched and your access to him and the E Street Band? Well, you know, people, and this is something Bruce is very conscious of, too, is that, you know, some people, you know, they see him, they mistake his, his kind of caricature, which at time, you know, and he's had a role in creating that persona. So it's not like his hands are exactly clean here, but people mistake that kind of working class, clean cut sort of working class hero with the muscles and the, you know, and the tight jeans from the mid 80s as, as being him. You know that he changes clothes in a phone booth and sort of zips around, um, and, and 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 he ain't that. You know, and and that's who he kind of that's who he wants to be. You know, I mean, that's that's who that's the best Bruce he can imagine, and and he puts all his energy and tons of energy into playing being that guy as much as he possibly can. Uh, but the truth is, he's a very human person, which is to say, uh, he has all the flaws. And, and all the warmth and, and, and all the, you know, occasional uh, na- 
nastiness of a person, and especially you know, as a person who has been the center of attention his entire adult life. You know, I mean, the guy walks. You know, when was the last time Bruce was in a room in a room with someone who was cooler than he was? <laughs> you know, I I don't think that happens. I don't think that happens when he's in the White House. You know, and I think that the the president of the United States knows that perfectly well, and that's why he admires Bruce so much. Um, <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, wow. <laughs> but on the other hand, he's walking down the streets of Freehold with his shopping list. You know, so. Uh, you know, and 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 taking pizza off of uh, his buddy's, pla- you know, platter. You know, taking left a leftover slice of pizza off his buddy's plates because they said, "Oh, we're done, we're done," and you know, <laughs> and he was hungry, so right. off he went. So, do you think, in terms of creatively, um, and you know, some people who are who are you know diehard Bruce fans might point to. Um, uh, the early '90s and the and the you know the the double album that he uh, the two albums that he did without the East Street Band. But do do you think that um, did you get the sense from your conversations with him that there are any regrets creativity creatively uh, about the stuff that that he's he's recorded and released over the years? Yeah. Um, I think that he has. I mean, I'm, look, some albums are better than others. That's just inevitable. Um, some songs are better than others, and, you know, and some big concepts, you know, he tried to work on, it just didn't work out, right? So, so that's just what happens in the world. So, um, you know, in life, but does he regret, does he regret stuff like that? I don't know that he does. Um, I think he wishes that he would have been a little more, you know, sensitive or, or less, uh, you know, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, kind of absolutist about the declared breakup of the E Street Band in 1989. Right. I think his intention was different, but in the moment, you know, in the in the heat of that particular moment, he sort of had to clear the decks sure, because he sure. needed to find he needed to do something else. You know, he needed to work with other people and explore different kinds of music and different kinds of setups. So some of the records that came after that maybe didn't live up to the highest possible standards. But on the other hand, the journey that took him through there, um, I think he, he sees as remarkably successful because it opened up doors and, and ideas and thoughts and, and experiences that he never would have had if he just kept plugging away with the E Street Band for those years. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, two members of the E Street Band have died, Danny Federici and Clarence Clemens. In your conversations with Bruce, how do you how do you feel that he dealt with those deaths? Especially, I mean, the, the musicians, especially Clarence, were key to his sound and stage persona. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it was crushing. I mean, particularly, I mean, in both cases, he played with Danny since they were both teenagers. Uh, you know, and Danny had been in his was like the long had been in the band or played with Bruce longer than anyone, going all the way back to. Uh, Steel Mill, when Steel Mill first formed, and it was, you know, they were called Child for the first, you know, nine months or so of their existence. Um, you know, so he was the one who, I remember, you remember back in the Born in the USA uh, tour, he, Bruce presented him with a washer and dryer for his 15th anniversary on stage with the band, <laughs> uh, which actually also hilariously was Bruce's own washer and dryer. They were playing in, he was living in LA at the time or had a house in LA. 
And so he just got some roadies to go up to his house and unplug his actual washer dryer and move them down to the Coliseum or the arena where they were playing. And uh, they rolled it out on stage at one point for the presentation, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but, you know, Danny was, you know, all you can do is, is, is you know, grieve and, and go on. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I mean, you know, and, and you know, uh, happily, you know, they had Charlie Giordano, who, who just kind of managed to, 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 to fit right in. And, and I think a large part of, you know, Charlie's particular magic, uh, both as a musician and a person, was to understand that he was filling a slot that was essentially really unfillable, it, you know, in a kind of spiritual way. Um, but he just is naturally a very quiet, very soft-spoken guy and, you know, a very positive, upbeat presence and also, uh, you know, a fantastic musician. And so, you know, a lot of what, you know, you know, he can play like Danny, let's put it that way, or to, as well as anybody could play like Danny, he can play that way. Right. And, uh, and it's a lot more complex than, than certainly uh, once I really started to listen than I thought it was. Uh, you know that Danny's parts before I got into it, but the guy was a masterful musician. Um, in terms of Clarence, I mean that was really, you know, in a way that was the most devastating loss that there could be in the band, because there was something about the mix of personalities between Bruce and Clarence. I mean, particularly back when they really used to play off each other a lot on stage, you know, and and in the early days of the band where. Bruce didn't really become the Bruce we know until, uh, you know, fully formed in that way until Clarence was at his side. You know, they sort of reflected each other's, you know, brilliance and made it, made it bigger just right. by being in each other's presence. And Bruce was fully aware of that. And, and, and Clarence played, you know, very distinct and very important roles, both in, you know, the band's performances and also, you know, obviously his saxophone sound, too. So, you know, and they were very close and on ways that were very, you know, unspoken and, and just kind of on a spiritual level. Uh, and when he lost Clarence, they, you know, when, when Clarence passed, um, you know, a year and a half ago, it was, as Bruce said later, and I think very accurately, it was like, it was elemental. He said it was like losing the rain, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, and that tells you a lot, I think. Sure, sure. Well, in your book, you—I mean—we've talked about how you really went back and looked at at, at the family history and, and relationships. Um, and in your book, you write about Springsteen's grandparents on his father's side, who—who, who, I guess the best way to describe them—they—they they weren't very hard workers. Um, and and obviously, you talked about his father dealing with manic depression, but also the fact that his father came back from. Uh, World War II and moved back in with his parents and basically didn't even look for a job for a while. And then, you know, there's the, there's also the, the, um, you know, once Bruce was born and there's the anecdote in there as well, where it, it came time for him to go to school and his grandparents actually um, encouraged his mom not to even send him to school. They just had this very, I'm not even sure how you would describe it, kind of a, um, a very unconventional and not very, Hardworking, and I guess I guess you know, as someone who knows a a lot about um, Springsteen, I guess that that really kind of struck me because for those listeners who may be unaware and think that you know Springsteen has led this kind of carefree rock and roll lifestyle, I mean, 
um, you know, it's been documented in, in numerous books, including yours, that during the Born to Run recording sessions and, and Darkness on the Edge of Town, I mean, they, they would go into the studio for 15 or 17 hours a day and mm-hmm. work on one single drum sound and then the, and end up throwing it away and spending another 16 or 17 hours recording another drum sound. And, yeah. the, and it would go on for weeks and weeks and months and months. And I was just struck by that, comparing that with his kind of grandparents. I mean, did I wonder what you think about that. I mean, given everything that you've, sure. you know. <laughs> well, Springsteen is, look, um, the two sides of his family, I think, are understanding Bruce means you've really got to go back and look at the two sides of the family. You know, who these people were and 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 on what the stories of their families were because one of the one of the sort of fascinating things about Bruce is that you know his blood carries essentially the two archetypical american experiences the springsteen side of his family you know emigrated from from uh holland in um the 17th century there've been Bruce, there've been springsteens in in monmouth county um since you know 100 years before the american revolution you know, they're old as the dirt out there. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, and generations and generations of, 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 you know, agrarian workers, of, of early, you know, industrial workers, people who just grew up, you know, their hands and their backs and their muscles, you know, are part, are what built the country, you know, in their, in their small way, uh, and always have been so. But the problem is, is that, you know, over the years, I mean, I don't know, I mean, it's not just because, you know, you're part of an old family or whatever, but their particular family had a certain amount of, uh, you know, mental instability that kind of trickled down through the DNA. Not everybody was touched by it, but the people who were tended to be touched pretty heavily. And so in some ways, just looking at it generationally, it's not surprising that Doug Springsteen ended up, you know, suffering from a, you know, a really serious mental illness, uh, you know, which was manic depression in his case. He had a first cousin who he was quite close to as a kid and, you know, and through their whole lives. And he was, had the same illness too, which may have been one of the things that, that kind of drew them together. Uh, you know, so, and also, I mean, there was tragedy in, in the immediate family because Doug, you know, Doug Springsteen, who's uh, Bruce's dad, had an older sister, uh, Virginia, who died very tragically at, you know, five years old, uh, just around the corner from the family's house, and that completely devastated her parents. And so Doug grew up in a very haunted house and went off to war and then came back and got married to Adele Zarilli, and, you know, the family moved into the Springs, you know, the Fred and Alice Springsteen's house, Bruce's grandparents, and they essentially adopted Bruce and made him their child, much, you know, even given the resistance of Adele. And, uh, and I don't know what Doug's position in the whole thing was, probably all the same to him. Um, uh, but it, young Bruce was both aware of his father's instability and the, the sort of the focus of a very strange and distorted in, intergenerational relationship between his parents and his maternal grandparents, who he loved ferociously because they treated him like a sun god. And they were warm-hearted, good people in their way, but they were also, as he put it, very outsider. You know, his dad was, you know, was, uh, was, in, was or excuse me, his grandfather was an electrician who worked in radios, 
and you know, fixing radios and that kind of thing. And event, you know, we used to work in an electronics store, but then kind of became freelance. And his thing was essentially going through people's trash and uh, pulling out radio parts and broken radios and taking them home and fixing them and then selling them to migrant laborers. And so Bruce, you know, I mean, so in other words, young Bruce would bond with his grandfather walking through the neighborhood, essentially dumpster diving for, for radio parts as a young kid. Uh, so there's that side of the family. But then you have his mother's side, the Zerillis, who were Italian immigrants from the early 20th century. And these people came to, you know, uh, Adele's father, uh, you know, Antonio and his wife, but particularly Antonio, you know, Anthony, came to uh, the U.S. in, 19, you know, the late teens, raring to go. You know, right. got off the boats, fluent in English, got himself through college, like within a year or two, went to law school, got through that in a year or two, started a thriving practice and was just making like, you know, making like an empire builder until, guess what, 1929 rolled around. And, you know, the guy was, you know, had a lot of investments, but was deeply leveraged, uh, worked in a uh, sort of an as a lawyer in this kind of investment uh, based firm. And, you know, everyone's money disappeared, his money disappeared. And, you know, the families, um, essentially their status, economic status and all that just kind of crumbled along with a lot of people. But that, that sense of the joy of work and the responsibility of, of work, excuse me, <clears throat> and, um, and, and just, you know, the kind of freedom that goes along with being a hard worker and, and doing all you can mm -hmm. to succeed was also in his blood. And these right. two things kind of, you know, came, you know, intertwined. And lo and behold, you have this Bruce Springsteen who is dark and tormented in a lot of ways, but also determined to build his own future, his own way by, you know, the sweat of his brow and, and you know, everything, you know, whatever talents God has given him, which, you know, fortunately for him was, you know, our multitudinous and powerful. So, uh, and that was the story. I mean, this guy, from the time he was a kid, from the time he was 19 years old, he, you know, he, when he had bands, they kept office hours. They practiced all day long, you know, and all night long, if he felt like it. And mm -hmm. they worked their tails off and were always, Bruce's bands were always tight as ticks. Everybody knew the songs. Everybody knew the arrangements. Everybody knew the nuances of the relate of, of the arrangements, which is why you know he has them so tightly trained, you know, and obviously has done with 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 the E Street Band. That you know it's, that's why when he's in the middle of a song and suddenly he just flicks his elbow, the whole band stops on a dime. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Max Weinberg told me that he gets a lot of the vital information he needs about where a song is going or whether it's about to transition to something else just by watching Bruce's trapezius muscles and his, you know, through the back of his shirt. Mm -hmm. The way he's about to move his arm, you can read that. Right, right. So... How, I mean, on that note, how many times have you seen Springsteen live? Dozens of times now over the years. I mean, going back to 1978 and the Darkness Tour, I think the only tour I missed... I, I was out of the country when Born, the Born in the USA tour was was rolling through here in '84, and uh, and then was back home in time for the tour to go to Europe, <laughs> where I had been, 
and uh, and so I missed that. And, and then when it came back, they hit big stadiums. But I was, you know, I was living in, here in the Northwest, and I didn't have the financial uh, wherewithal to just sort of hide myself down to Los Angeles or whatever to catch the nearest show. Right, right. So can you talk about your own writing career? As I mentioned earlier, in addition to Bruce, you've written biographies of Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys and Paul McCartney. Um, in your writing career, what led up to writing those biographies? What did you do, um, you know, post-college, et cetera? Well, when I got out of school, I started as a copy aide at the Oregonian newspaper. I was lucky enough to, to sort of score that job in a really, uh, uh, in a really, um, you know, fortunate way. And, and, and the weird thing is I never really, uh, everyone always talked to me about the guy I replaced and, uh, and, and it turned out later when I got married that my wife knew him in high school and, uh, all these other people knew him. And, and now, you know, at long last, we're, uh, we're like, we keep in touch on Facebook all the time. He's a really cool guy. He works at the New York post now. Uh, but we sort of like, when, but anyway, that's a, that's off the point, but it's one of those weird circular things. Yes. yes. Uh, but, but anyway, um, so I did that. I started freelancing once I got to uh, once I got to the Oregon and just book review, uh, book reviews and concert reviews and that kind of stuff. I was always deeply into popular culture, and uh, you know, and and then I quit in '87 and, and worked on my own as a freelance writer for the next eight years or so, eight and a half years, and then got a sort of freakish job offer to go move to New York and work at People Magazine which I did for four and a half, you know, between, I think, early 96 and the end of 2000. And that was a tremendous amount of fun and, and very educational and, and full of neat people. Came back here, uh, moved back to Portland to work as a TV critic at the Oregonian newspaper and did that job for about, uh, you know, eight, eight and a half years. And then uh, they decided to, you know, when the whole newspaper industry was kind of going down the tubes, they, uh, they they decided to to eliminate the TV critic job, the full time job, and uh, and I kind of got uh, became a feature reporter, and uh, to sort of assuage my 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 uh, sort of uh, unhappiness with the end of the TV beat, they just sort of let me do the sorts of stories I wanted to do. So I got to do a bunch of different kinds of of, of interesting to me uh, sort of culture based but not popular culture based stories. Uh, and then, but all the time from the early, uh, the time I was a TV critic forward, I was always pretty much had a book going on the side. And, uh, you know, and, and, and these somehow always, you know, I was always trying to kind of, uh, to, to try to professionalize my, my boyhood fascinations, you know, my ongoing obsession. And so far so good on that front, because <laughs> anyone who knew me when I was, when I was in high school, knows that like the three musicians I talked about endlessly were Brian Wilson and Paul McCartney and Bruce Springsteen. So, you know, I'm running out of heroes, but uh, but so far so good. They they served me well. Yeah. So so what is your writing process like? Do you have a specific workflow or specific tools? Do you just use Word or or? Well, I just um, it, it sort of goes in phases. You know, some days are all about reporting. I mean, weeks, months. You know, some years are all about really re- reporting stuff, being on the phone, getting interviews, begging people for for interviews, uh, you, you trying to schedule them. You know, that kind of stuff, and spending time on the phone, just you know, with the phone tucked under my over my shoulder, and just you know, typing as fast as I can or taping or whatever. Uh, and then there's like the months or years where I spend actually trying to take all that stuff and turn it into a book. 
And, you know, that's when I begin to feel kind of damaged as an individual, because as any writer will tell you, I mean, everybody, you know, obviously it's kind of a dream to be a, a professional writer until you actually have to sit down and write professionally, which turns out to be a huge pain in the ass because, uh, you know, it takes a long time to get, at least for me uh, and, and my sad little friends, it, it, you know, it takes somehow it takes a long time to kind of get to the emotional place where it begins to make sense. You know, you really have to, I feel like a scuba diver, you know, when I'm, when I'm, I got to kind of like descend into the material I'm trying to write about to try to absorb, you know, the feelings and the nuances and, and, and the real emotional story taking place behind all these facts and, and, and dates. Because that's what you're looking for. At least that's what I'm looking for. I mean, to me, that's the key of the whole story, that everything you write has to be about people having you know, emotional experiences, being governed by the heat of their emotions. Because when someone's up to something significant, it's all about that. You know, they're processing something. They're they're sublimating something. They're, they're you know they're, they're 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 sort of creating magic in a way. And to try you know and, and and my sort of white whale, I guess, when it comes to writing about people, is is finding that kind of nexus between, you know, them walking to you know their feet, scuffling down the street, in that experience, and the sudden, you know, the sudden creative bolt of lightning. You know, and how the experience of what they're, you know, what they're, what they see when they walk down the street, or whatever sent them out the door to walk down the street, how that somehow creates the energy, you know, that will attract that lightning, the bolt out of the blue, that results in art. You know, and that to me, that I'm endlessly fascinated by that, and it's not necessarily just art; it, it's just any kind of creative person who is who is up to big stuff or up to sure. anything really so what are some books that you've read in the past year that made an impact on you and that you would recommend Ooh, wow i've been on a good streak lately um i've been reading a lot and uh, and really enjoying it um i thought that uh um, I thought that Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs was fantastic. I mean, that was uh, you know that was great. I really like I really liked, uh, I really liked uh, 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 D.T. Max's biography of, of David Foster Wallace. Um, I liked uh, I, I loved the um, greeting or the, um, the you know the uh, <laughs> visit from the Goon Squad. Oh I thought yes, that was a fantastic novel. Jennifer Egan. Jennifer Egan's book, yeah, that was brilliant. I was really moved by that. I liked uh, Gary Steingart's book. Uh, tra- you know, I can't remember the exact series of words. A crazy, true, tragic love story, futuristic book. I-, I thought that was brilliant, and I thought his vision of the future was hysterically funny and incredibly dark and just terrifyingly, probably completely accurate. <laughs> like in twenty years, that will be our lives. You know, um, uh, Holly, what else? I mean, those so, are books. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just trying to remember, like, the others. I, there's a big stack of them by my bed because when I finish, I just sort of toss them there on the under the book, the uh, bedside table that I've got. And uh, and every so often, I'll, I'll you know, when, especially if, like, I'm on my hands and knees searching for the book I'm, like, you know, I'm reading now that got kicked under the bed somehow. I look at those books and I go, "Ooh, that was a good one." Oh, I love that one. You know, like, <laughs> Ooh, so, I wish I was so still have reading. You, have you started thinking about or planning your your next book? 
I've been thinking vague, general, dreamy dream thoughts um, about certain topics or ideas or potential directions, but I haven't really had a chance to, uh, I just really haven't had the time or uh, attention to just really try to bang through. I mean, I, I spent a couple of days like digging up clips just to, you know, doing the, the, the original, the, the initial steps of, to see what's out there, uh, read up and, you know, try to go back as far as I can. Um, but in terms of like actually getting serious and trying to pitch something, it's like, I, I'm not, I don't know how close I am to that yet. Right. Right. Well, thanks. Well, again, we've been speaking with Peter Ames Carlin, the author of Bruce, a new Bruce Springsteen biography that was published last week. Peter, thanks for doing the interview. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.